0: Well, hello everyone, and thanks again for downloading this next episode. Um, look, I usually start these things off by uh, apologising for the delay between the last episode and this episode, and then saying, "Well, I'm going to keep up to speed and do one every week." Um, let's stop pretending. I'm just going to do these whenever I get around to doing them. Uh, so, continue looking at our Twitter feed or something like that to see when these things pop up. Um, I pretty much given up on uh, any sort of set timetable now. However, we do have an episode today, um, so I'm actually delighted. It's been a while uh, to get this person onto the podcast. Uh, I have been trying, but it's been uh, a little bit hard to, to coordinate schedules. Um, but I'm glad that we've got him on today. Um, Dominic Horseman from the University of Grenoble in France. Uh, we have done some work together in the past. And I'm absolutely delighted that uh, he's able to spend an hour talking with us today. So, Dom, thanks uh, for joining me.
1: Great. Well, thank, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, you should definitely stop apologising and go for it. When you when you got the good stuff, put it out.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, um, as usual, when we when we have somebody new on, um, let's give us a, a first a bit of a bio uh, about yourself, how you got into to quantum computing related research, and uh, Basically, how you evolved to uh, what you're working on now, which we'll talk about uh, shortly.
1: Yeah, so I I got into quantum computing through Quantum Foundations. Um, this is this is actually the fault of a guy who I think some people know called Flavio Vedral, uh, who was one of my undergraduate tutors. Uh, I did I read physics and philosophy at Oxford as an undergraduate, and I was very into, you know, what's what's quantum mechanics all about, Um, really liked the Everett interpretation, was, was hot for many worlds, and I think, like, you know, like everybody who does that sort of thing when you're 21, what you most want to do is find the theory of everything. So I was absolutely going to go off, go off and you know solve all of the problems of quantum gravity. That was that was what I was going to do for my PhD. Um, and then Vlatko, this was this was back in the late 90s, or um, well, maybe around the year 2000. He invited me to go just look around his research group. This was. Um, the the quantum optics group that had just been formed in the top of the clarendon laboratory in oxford and i remember going there on a very hot sunny uh summer's morning in this tiny little group that was just so completely different from everybody else in in that lab um they were not to put too fine a point on it not 60 years old and (laughs) Honestly, the, so I did a summer project in the Clarendon, and it was like three quarters of the people there were the mad scientist stereotype of the old white guy with the old white hair, and in this England, was the other. In Oxford. yeah, in Oxford, yes, um, and and it was like my God, I found the physicists who aren't like that. This is brilliant, um, and then and then Flacco sort of grabbed a whiteboard. Uh, somebody else floated in, sort of looked vaguely at us, said hello, and then floated out again. And I was like, yes, I've definitely found my people. Um, and, and then Black Coast showed me teleportation. And that just completely blew my mind, because I was an utter Trekkie growing up, still out. And I was like, what, you mean Teleport A, you mean teleportation is an actual thing. And... B we're building computers out of it. This is crazy. This is this is wonderful. I've got to be part of this. And then he showed me the no cloning theorem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that kind of the fact that it was three or four lines of algebra and it said this this incredible thing that you can't copy quantum data. Yep. And and this was this was, I think, even after three and a half years of undergraduate teaching, this was my first real understanding of how powerful high-level mathematics could be. Because mm-hmm. it was like, you know, four four lines, and it broke open what you could and couldn't do with quantum computing. Um, and, and then he said, you know, you could do a PhD in this stuff, and I'm like, I'm sold. I'm there, hundred percent. Right. <laughs> um, so I I ended up working on what what it meant for quantum computing if many worlds was true. So if we if we take what's called an Everettian ontology, so we think the world is many worlds, um, then then what does that tell us about how quantum computing is working? And more importantly, um, the work I actually did for my PhD, how do we describe this mathematically? Because the way sort of the standard um, quantum formalism is, it's a bit ad hoc. You've got like the Schrodinger equation, which you solve and you find your solutions, but somehow those solutions, don't really map to what you measure. You've got to take the state and then throw it through the meat grinder of what's called the Born rule, and there's no kind of there's nothing that tells you when you apply that or not. You you just have to arbitrarily say, well, this particular bit of quantum evolution is called a measurement, and so we apply this rule to it, and every other time we apply a different rule. And
0: so just to clarify a little bit, the, the, the Everett hmm. or the many worlds interpretation is, is this this idea that every time a measurement is made in a quantum system or in this case, a quantum computer, the universe splits. Where one no, measurement no, it's not. No?
1: It's not. So that's ah,
0: that.
1: Yes. So that's kind of the um, that's the science fiction way of, of putting it. Um, and you know, there's, there's kind of a million things wrong with that because you can say, well, that's not solving the problem of measurement because you've got to decide what operation is a measurement because that's the thing that splits the universe. Ah, well,
0: Um, this, this is perfect. Sorry to detract because this could be the first time on a podcast that we actually try and nail this down a little bit better than sort of the sliders interpretation of this.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yes. Yes. So the other I mean, the other problem that you can immediately come up with with that kind of of, I like that. I'll call I'll call it now the sliders interpretation, Um, although that is now making me think of like boards of small amounts of food. But never mind. So the the other problem you can think of that is, well, what basis do you split it? Because we know from quantum mechanics that you know you've got you've got your state and that can be written in several different bases and in in one basis you could say well okay my my universe is splitting according to particle position but that would mean each particle in each universe, should properly be in a superposition of momentum states. Mm-hmm. So why do you split on particle position rather than particle momentum? And when you get into quantum computing, it's even more um, obvious that this is this so-called preferred basis problem is a problem, because you think, well, am I defining my qubits? Um, in the computational basis, in the zero-one basis. So am I thinking of, oh, my computation is splitting as, you know, in one branch it's zero and in one branch it's one, or am I in the Hadamard basis, the plus or minus basis, so the zero plus one and the zero minus one basis? Which one do I choose? Which one does the universe choose? And the, the point is that in what I would call the... Everyone wants to call their interpretation the standard interpretation. I shall. This is my my version of this podcast. I will say it's the standard Everettian interpretation. The investor's not. <laughs> um, the point is what it's saying is that the fundamental reality, so what's called the fundamental ontology, is that the entire quantum state is actualized. So whatever reality is, it corresponds to the entire quantum state rather than just a bit of it. Mm -hmm. So in other interpretations, like, uh, for instance, a hidden variable model, the quantum state is considered akin to a probability measure. It's just you don't know which particular state the world is in so you put a probability measure over all the possible states but it's actually fundamentally in one of them whereas in the Everett interpretation it's saying you're actually in all of the states at the same time right and so then you develop a lot of questions that you have to answer from that most particularly being why do we, as human beings, only appear to see one? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's where the original formulation, the original name of the interpretation comes in, the relative states interpretation. That's what Everett called it, because the idea is that what any particular cis- subsystem within the whole quantum universe sees is the state of the rest of the system relative to it. So this is then the idea that, if you like, what we are is much more than the one state of ourselves we're aware of.
0: So how does this that, link into sort of, I mean, let's try and restrict it to, let's talk about a quantum computation, let's assume the quantum computer is the
1: universe.
0: And, I mean, what, what would you say? Okay, we're, we're going to run a quantum algorithm where our measurements at the end is intrinsically probabilistic. We might get yeah. a zero, we might get a one. If you tried to, to pull this out as to sort of how this works in this interpretation, what's a way to potentially look at reality if reality is just this quantum computer?
1: Well, the the way to look at reality if it's just the quantum computer is very simple because it's saying that everything that is written in the quantum state is there in reality. So when you write down uh, the superposition of all the different uh, computational basis states, those are all present there, but it's all as a superposition. So it's not this idea that you've got these these multiple branches, it's that you've got one monolithic um, lump of reality that's doing the computing and that's that's if you like never been particularly problematic what's problematic is but you can't access all of that and this is this is sort of the the fundamental Thing about programming quantum computers is it looks like we've got all of this um, power and all of this this computation happening, but we know when we measure, we can only measure a very small amount of, of what looks like it's there. And in, in the Everett interpretation, what's going on when you measure is that the measuring device is itself a quantum device. And so you can't think of it as somehow standing outside of the system and getting this privileged view of it as soon as it interacts with the system in order to form a measurement because a measurement is nothing special it's just a, a physical interaction then it becomes part of this this big state of measuring device and the computer And uh, then the states of the measuring device become correlated with the states of the computer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if there are then other measuring devices that we would call people who are using the quantum computer, who, when they entangle with the measuring device, only see it in certain states, then what they will see from the quantum computer is the quantum computer's states that are relative to those states.
0: So it's sort of so it's, it's, this idea of consistency, that I see what I'm supposed to see.
1: Yeah. And you see, you you can tag it all as branches if you want to, but you've always got to come back to, well, what's, what's defining what's a branch or not? Mm. Because until you have something that defines what's a branch or not, then everything's just in this superposition, entangled state. And there's you know, there's various things that, that people have come up with to define branching, um, and it can get very weird very quickly, so I won't go into a lot of those. But what we do know is that matter at a large scale decoheres. So there is there is a decoherence basis. This was some work that um, Zurich did back in the 1980s, I think it was, to show that um, you know quantum correlations decay in bulk. And we know this, this is one of the reasons why it's difficult to build a quantum computer, because when you put lots of quantum systems together, then they normally stop acting like quantum systems unless you're very careful with them. Mm-hmm and the reason is decoherence and decoherence just we have found experimentally tends to be into a basis that is approximately localized in position and approximately localized in momentum which is pretty much what we we know of as our everyday experience so if you if you have a set of users of a quantum computer for whom that's their preferred basis, then that's how they're going to build their computers and that's how they're going to interact with them. And so when they use measuring devices, those measuring devices will, if you like, pick up that preferred basis. But what's, what's going on fundamentally is the entire quantum state is there all the time. It's just which bits of it different bits of that state see That tells you how you can use the entire state to compute when you can't measure the entire state
0: So you're basically saying with just to try and to reiterate a little bit. So let, let's take a specific qubit example um, Take I don't know ions or something like that or photons Mm-hmm. Are you basically saying, because of the nature of how we would build technology, that we're probably going to look for, you know, is a photon here or is it not here or is it here? That sort of enforces this preferred basis that it's sort of just the natural way in which we build things. Is am I interpreting this the right way?
1: There's an element of that, but there's also, I'd say, more importantly, that the way we work is that we only see part of the quantum state. Whatever the quantum state is, we can't we can't entangle ourselves with the entire state, mm-hmm. um, and so that has the knock-on effect that we're always going to only be measuring a small part of the entire state, and so this is this is what makes us clever in in terms of programming quantum computers because we know there's the whole state out there and we know we're only going to be measuring a bit of it. So it's how do we weave what's going on in a quantum algorithm? How do we manipulate that entire state and the interference effects within it and the entanglement effects within it such that when we get our one shot at measuring one bit of it, we get out the information that we want.
0: So this is somewhat as as a skill in our ability to build technology of we're going to try and isolate this specific two degrees of or one degree of freedom, two states, um, as best as we can, because that's what we need to do the computation. and I suppose this gets into the error correction and everything else that we work on from a practical level that yeah, this is about having a high fidelity in system is we're not going to allow the quantum state to leak out.
1: Yes, we want to keep we want to keep it all together. Because, because keeping the quantum state whole is how we do the computation. But then we can't access everything that we, we're using to compute with. So as soon as you start to measure it, then you're, you're putting yourself into the computation. We're putting our measuring devices into the computation and we're disturbing it it's exactly the same as if we let it uh, decay here into the environment so you were talking about error correction it's exactly as if we weren't isolating the system we weren't correcting for error so we've got to we've got to keep it isolated for as long as possible and then right at the end we come in and we measure and and programming is about making sure that what we're measuring at the end is exactly the answer that we want
0: so, I mean, this, this kind of foundational aspect that you came to quantum computing with, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and I certainly don't want to put words in his mouth, but but David Deutsch has always sort of, well, at least recently, been advocating that quantum computing is, is somewhat of, a, of, a, of an evidentiary pathway as to the, the many worlds or the Everett interpretation is true. Um, is this a position that you hold or are you still so that- pretty much agnostic on all of this?
1: So um that's that's I think a fair reflection of David Deutsch's um public pronouncements and I know he's said that he found it useful to be thinking in an Everettian ontology when he came up with quantum computing I mean we shouldn't forget he's the guy who invented the thing um on the other hand um one could if one believed in the Everett interpretation then Everything about quantum mechanics is proof of the Everett interpretation. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you know we we're going to have to do a little bit more heavy lifting in order to have a knockdown argument in ter- for many worlds. Um, I mean, from from my very personal point of view, I've almost um, given up. Uh, trying to evangelise about many worlds. I'm not particularly interested anymore in convincing other people that it's true. Um, For me, it's it's what I use, it's the scaffolding that I use in order to do my work, in order to think about quantum computing. I find it very, very useful. Um, I think it's something that a lot of other people would also find useful, Um, I think that we we need to have that kind of high-level mental scaffolding in order to come up with more things to do with quantum computers because let's face it we don't have an awful lot of quantum algorithms at the moment Mm -hmm. and so rather than getting hung, hung up on questions of absolute truth of ontology while they're important i think from the point of view of programming quantum computing it's more what's useful to be thinking of quantum computers in terms of and for me many worlds is very useful um and i don't see any of the other interpretations as supporting useful mental scaffolding to talk about quantum programming
0: so i must that sort of segues quite nicely into what I want to ask you next I mean you really have sort of straddled sort of I would say two very different sides of this coin in the the sense that you're coming from the foundational standpoint where it's very much this kind of discussion but then Mm -hmm. a lot of your recent work and certainly the work you and I have done together in the past is very very practically oriented it's about how are we going to build these things how are we going to implement the necessary error correction protocols? How these things are going to be programmed? So, would, is it fair to say that that your interest has definitely shifted more towards that end than? And it, I mean, I suppose you sort of tiptoe a little bit still in foundations. I see some papers coming out from you every <laughs> well, now and I, again. I,
1: yeah, I think I do more than tiptoe. Um, so, I think it is for me. These are not. Um, these aren't different because in the end we're asking ourselves what's going on under the hood of reality and how we can use that is simply technology happens when we understand reality well enough. Um, And so I'm going, I'm going to let you in on a secret about the work that we did on lattice surgery. Um, so I never told anybody where that came from, why I came up with that. And that there's actually a direct line between the work I did for my PhD, which was on coming up uh, or further developing uh, a formalism for use with the Everett interpretation. And what I, what I was thinking of when looking at the way surface codes worked was well, what if you could map say the so it's called the Deutsch hayden um formalism this this formalism for many words saying what if you could map what was going on in the Deutsch Hayden formalism?" exactly to what's going on in the surface codes what would it look like so i made that mapping and it's quite easy because the deutsch hayden formalism um, takes as its basis what maps exactly to the logical operators uh in a surface code so that was the first thing that made me think oh this is quite fun um and so then i i just thought well Here's how you write a C knot in the Deutsch-Hayden interpretation. What would that look like in a surface code? And it looked like you needed to actually split these codes up. Right. So I thought, well, why can't you do that? So that's where lattice surgery came from. So I'm not saying lattice surgery is proof of the Everett interpretation. And the, what I'm saying is that the work I did on the many worlds interpretation. And looking at um, looking at using it in a different context that led directly to this very very practical scheme for error correction.
0: Well, it makes me think that I should pay more attention when people talk about foundations with me.
1: Absolutely, everybody <laughs> should pay attention because and and this is this is actually a serious point that um, we have very little. Um, I called it mental scaffolding before. We have very few ways of thinking about how quantum systems are processing data because we, we're we kind of lacking this generally accepted view of how quantum systems behave. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we, we all share the mathematics, more or less, of quantum mechanics, but we don't share mental pictures. We don't share physical, constructive understandings of what's going on. And that translates into not really understanding how quantum computers are processing information, and so not really being able to use all of our creative skills and all of our intuitive skills in order to come up with new algorithms and new protocols. And the branch of quantum mechanics that deals with physical Constructive, practical pictures of what's going on is the foundations of quantum mechanics.
0: So, I mean, there's this kind of this this kind of thing that you said that happened with our work on ladder surgery and how you you got to the position of thinking about it. Has that happened again?
1: Has that happened again? Um,
0: yeah, has, has something else in your later work? Because I mean, that paper's what about seven years old now. Mm. Um, has the foundational scaffolding, as you as you put it? Given rise to another idea that we've we've now seen in one of your other more practical papers.
1: So this um, the the foundational thread has now become much more entwined with what I'm doing, um, and this has come out again in so a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment uses what's called the ZX calculus. So this is um, That's where I was
0: hoping you were going with this. <laughs> Excellent. You're a very
1: good in- interviewer. <laughs> um, so, so yes, absolutely. And the ZX calculus. So for, for people who don't know what the ZX calculus is, um, it's I, I said before that we more or less have a shared mathematics for quantum mechanics. This is this is the more or less. Um, in that the ZX calculus is a new way of writing out quantum computing processes. Um, if you if you want to get um, incredibly technical, and you might shut me up as soon as I start saying the words. So so um, these are Frobenius algebras, and and then you can start talking about compact closed categories and get off into category theory and. You know five percent of the audience will go yes and 95 percent will go oh god no yeah
0: that's um, as far down that road as you're allowed to go yeah.
1: okay but the brilliant thing about the zx calculus is you can use it and you can use it to do calculations about quantum computing without giving a damn about any of the scaffolding underneath it because all you need to know about um, the stuff underneath it Is it means it lends these these red and green string diagrams the status of equations so you can you can basically write out really quite complicated quantum protocols using blobs and strings and then you've got a whole set of what are called rewrite rules so they'll they'll enable you to look at a substructure in the diagram and go oh I can rewrite it to this other substructure and what you're guaranteed is that the resulting diagram when translated You know back and forth to to Hilbert space quantum mechanics is the same state the same structure I mean, so it's a you loose, can,
0: Sorry is a loose comparison here to something that people might be more familiar with if they're, if they're used to physics is is the way Feynman diagrams are used to write these absolutely. complicated Lagrangians for field theories?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, so Feynman diagrams are pretty much the only other example within physics of diagrammatic equational reasoning, because we're used to kind of writing out diagrams that, that help us think, you know, that's what, that's what circuit diagrams are, uh, but what we're not particularly used to other than in Feynman diagrams is the idea that you can rewrite them and know that you're doing rigorous equational reasoning when you do that. Mm-hmm. so that's what you get out of the zx calculus and so you can do things like proving um that quite complicated protocols do what you want them to do by rewriting the diagrams and this is so the zx calculus uh this is uh the brainchild of uh, a guy called bob kirker in oxford and ross duncan and with this year we're celebrating the 10-year anniversary of its inception Mm -hmm. and it came very much out of a foundational take on quantum computing the idea of well what's actually going on how can we re-describe this in ways that are completely different from the standards um, models in terms of circuits and so on and I came to the ZX calculus, actually just before the work we did on lattice surgery, but for the same reason, Mm -hmm. because I'd taken um, the the Deutsch-Hayden stuff that eventually turned into lattice surgery. I took it in another direction and created um, a graphical calculus out of it. Now, this was sort of... You know, Fisher prized my first graphical calculus. <laughs> I didn't particularly know what I was doing in terms of of um, making a formal language. I just knew that if I if I translated what was going on in in that quite complicated mathematics into pictures, then I could reason with it. Um, and a couple of people said. Ooh, this looks like what these guys in Oxford are doing. go and go talk to them. So I, I turned up and we had a sort of bit of mutual incomprehension and, and um, eventually I started to understand what a formal language was and what this idea of equational rewriting would be. And then I got um, interested in surface codes because I got interested in the zx calculus because there was there was at that point um robert Rausendorf who was one of the people who worked very much in surface codes um back then he said at one point oh braid patterns in the surface code look a lot like the patterns that are going on in the zx calculus uh he was thinking especially in terms of um, sort of double defect so in the surface code you can create a qubit in a lot of different ways and one way is you can punch a couple of holes in it and then in the 3d surface code you get these kind of space time braid patterns and to do um, to do logic gates, you you braid these braids around each other, and if if you write out these 3D braid patterns, they do start to look a lot like the structures that you get in the ZX calculus for the same um, for the for the same protocol. And so I kind of shelved the Deutsch-Hayden Fisher Price graphical calculus. And because I was getting into surface codes at that point anyway, I thought, well, okay, as a as a way of learning Zx calculus properly, I'm going to formalise Rassendorf's hunch. And so this was this was some work I did. Ooh, this would be 2011 now. Um, and and so yes, I I proved that what you get topologically in the ZX calculus is exactly, sorry, the other way around. What you get topologically in braided logic and the surface code maps exactly to the ZX calculus, which But the ZX
0: calculus, sorry, to cut you off, but the ZX calculus, you you find it's broader than this. I mean, it's not just related to surface code computing, although there seems, well, as you said, you've proved that there there is a direct mapping between the two. Yeah. But, uh, I mean... Sorry, again. I just wanted to elaborate a little bit more on this mm-hmm. um, because we've been seeing so much coming out in sort of the quantum programming language software space. And while it doesn't appear to be in with to be in the packages that you're seeing from places like IBM or Rigetti or Microsoft, um, I've certainly been hearing in the background from various people who we both know um, mm-hmm. that this potentially is. The preferred framework for programming these machines, versus um, no, what we're already seeing.
1: Yes, so it's it's very very flexible, and the connections to surface codes is just one um, one demonstration of its flexibility. So, yeah, mm-hmm. what we've one of the big results we've had in the last year is that we now know. Uh, we have a complete set of of rewrite rules that make the calculus complete for all of cubic quantum mechanics. So what this means is anything that you do with the calculus, rewriting it, using these rules, will be correct. And anything that's correct for, for for complete cubic quantum mechanics. So Anything that you can do with a universal quantum computer, you can not only represent it in ZX calculus, but you can rewrite it and keep it correct. And one of the, the great things that we can do with this is compilation. Because one of the, the big challenges we're having now t- from a technological point of view is we've got a bunch of things we want to do on a quantum computer and we're starting to get quantum computers, but the way the quantum computers are being built, they don't exactly match the way that we've built our algorithms. Right. So we've got to compile from one to the other. And what a compilation procedure is, is exactly a rewrite procedure. You're you're taking an algorithm that has been, you know, in a lot of the cases they've been designed in pen and paper, by by human beings. And they'll be written in terms of circuits, and there might be like controlled unit trees and CNOTs and whatever. And then on the other hand, you've got, say, NV centers in diamond, you've got quantum dots on silicon wafers, you've got ions in a trap. And whatever their native interaction whatever the interaction is that's going on within those traps it certainly is not a CNOT it is not a a controlled multi-qubit unitary you've got to construct them out of the fundamental interactions that are going on and so classically this is compilation from a high level language like java or html or whatever all the way down to machine code and what that is, is each step in that compilation is a rewriting of the program. And so you rewrite from the high-level language down to the low-level language. But you've got to be sure at every step that you're preserving the correctness of the program. Because it's no it's no good taking something that you want to do and then rewriting it to machine code that does something completely different. And so, it's... This is the challenge we've got with quantum mechanics, is to build that compiling stage. And what are the tools that we have to use? Well, there's linear algebra, so that's Dirac notation. Um, there's circuit diagrams, which don't have equational rewriting. You can't rewrite one circuit diagram into another following a set of rules and be sure that it's the same circuit. Or we've got the ZX calculus. And the ZX calculus, we do have equational rewriting. We can... We've got the expressibility both to express high-level concepts to the extent that we have high-level concepts in quantum programming. And you can also... Unlike circuit diagrams, you can represent the native operations of things like ion traps directly in the ZX calculus. So and you so, feel that, sorry, no, no, go on.
0: So I was just going to clarify a little bit as to you think that this is potentially something that's going to go on in the back. You know, if somebody's going to come and say, "Well, I'm going to program this quantum algorithm to," I don't know, add two numbers together and take a Fourier transform they're not going to write it in the ZX calculus Mm. notation, right? This is going to be written in some standard sort of intuitive language for for programmers, and then all of this stuff's going to be in the background.
1: Well, I think it will certainly be in the background, but it's an open question at the moment whether this is what people can actually use. Mm -hmm. So from, again, it comes back to mental scaffolding. You know, we've, we've had the circuit model, the idea that you can build up algorithms out of, out of CNOTs. And we've got a certain number of what I'd call uh, Lego block protocols, like the quantum Fourier transform, that we know how they work as a whole protocol. And then we can use those as slotting in to, to larger algorithms. But we don't have that many of them um and and partly i would argue that is because the circuit model doesn't give us enough to work with mentally in order to come up with new ways that we can use it the zx calculus gives us a new way of thinking about quantum programming so if you if you start using it You're thinking about the manipulation of quantum information in very different ways. It's able to express different interactions between qubits than the circuit model. It's able to give you different pictures and different tools in order to come up with new algorithms. And so I would say not only should we be thinking of it in terms of an intermediate compilation language, we should be looking at... Pushing it much more as a way to think about designing quantum algorithms. I think everybody should get into the ZX calculus. Um, so there's there's some work that we've done recently, for instance, on using the ZX calculus to come up with new uh, error correction codes. So what are called coherent parity check codes, and you can really see in that paper. There will be a new version going on archive soon that if you if you use the reasoning tools that ZX calculus gives you, you can actually perform not only calculations that are very, very difficult um, using standard methods, but you can start to see structures that were just opaque before. so the particular example we had was f- using the ZX calculus to represent the encoding operation and the decoding operations in, um, in an error correction code. And you can visually take an error and rewrite the diagram such that it, it pushes the error through the decoder so you can uh-huh. you can watch where errors propagate to and what syndromes they'll they'll produce and there's no other tool i know of that does that
0: so um, i mean are you from- going to potentially in the in the coming months or years or whatever start thinking about building up some sort of you know toy programs and stuff like that for the for the non quantum initiated to start mm-hmm. playing around uh-huh. with
1: that's that's already coming out so there's there's we've had quantumatic which is some software for rewriting zx calculus for many years now that's quite it's a very powerful tool but it's got quite a learning curve to it and so just now so i think it's either just come out or it's just about to come out Alex Kissinger and his group in Nijmegen in the Netherlands have produced Pyzix. So this is a Python ZX graphical front end for the ZX calculus. So it's there. It's it's a tool that people will be able to use in order to manipulate ZX patterns and rewrite them at at a very high level. Um, One thing I would like to do is as you're saying, to to produce um, an actual programming language out of this. And s- something I think it would be um, very nice to do, although I would probably need other people to help me to do this, so if anybody's interested, getting get in touch. Do you know the the Scratch programming language, the sort yeah. of the one kids that's visually put blocks together and so on. So the ZX calculus would work perfectly as a quantum scratch because it's very visual and it's very much compositional in terms of you take elements of the diagram and you slot them together. So I think we could have a very nice um, sort of quantum scratch front end for the ZX calculus. And that's something that I think would be very very powerful to get people thinking in terms of what things can we do with quantum computers it would also it would also lower the entry barrier to non-quantum people being able to to program quantum computers to reason quantum mechanically and to start thinking well you know i'm doing my thing in chemistry or biology or whatever how could quantum computers help me because at the moment you need to be an expert in quantum computing in order to yeah. use a quantum computer which is is totally not the case classically you know anybody pretty much can can use a web browser and the, the you know you don't have to program machine code in order to program a classical computer, whereas that's pretty much what you have to do for, for a quantum computer at the moment. So that's what I'd really like to see is is a very high-level, very intuitive, very direct way of programming quantum computers and for reasoning about them, and I think that is what the ZX calculus will give us.
0: And you really you, you feel the formalism itself can actually give you insights rather than just You know, take the current versions where you're basically just putting gates wherever you need to put them. You already need to have some intuition about how an algorithm is going to work. Um, You think that potentially the ZX calculus um, approach could actually provide a certain level of intuition that tells you not just how to construct circuits from an algorithm, but how to design the algorithms themselves.
1: No, exactly, and that's that's again something we found um, when using ZX for these coherent parity check codes. Um, in in that, once we started looking at them diagrammatically, we could see the structure of them, and so the the whole um, so the CPC framework is built around decomposing codes into bit check. and and phase checks and then having cross checks between those two checks it gets complicated but that tripartite structure was something that came out of viewing them in terms of the zx calculus and as soon as we got that tripartite structure we were able to then do reasoning about it and zone in on those cross checks and by looking at the information or how the errors were propagating through the ZX diagrams, you'd actually manually find which cross-checks were going to work. And all of that was completely opaque before we started using the ZX calculus. We had no idea that that structure was there.
0: Well I think that's so, a good... I mean that, that, that provides a certain level of hope at the moment rather than uh, just what well, seems to be a certain level of, of, you know, shooting in the blind or shooting in the dark mm. to try to find something yes. that's going to be uh, interesting and useful uh, for these machines before we get to the numbers of qubits that we need to do, you know, full error correction.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And and also it's not just sort of giving us giving us more mental tools. It's also... For when we do get to the num to the number of qubits that we're going to need for error correction, just being able to physically handle that in terms of the way that we represent um, our quantum processes because you know what's what's the the latest numbers are, are several thousand physical qubits per logical qubit for for a general purpose um, quantum computer well. Are you really going to represent each logical qubit with 5,000 lines in a circuit diagram? No. You know, that's, no. that's, that's, that's terrible. And if, you've, if you don't have a way of representing at a high level what's happening on a large scale, you also have no way of verifying what's going on you've got no way of going well this is my machine code is it really doing what i think it's doing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and this is so there's an interesting um blog post i was reading uh, by a guy called craig gidney i think that's how you pronounce it who's working at google at the moment and they were looking he was looking specifically at surface code distillation circuits
0: yeah, you found mes- an error in one of my papers, which is wonderful <laughs> to hear. Yes, but
1: you see, that that was, I mean, how many qu- how many qubits than that? A dozen at, at the most.
0: Yeah, and yeah the, the, the one we had in that paper wasn't very big.
1: Yeah, it, it wasn't very big, and yet there was there was kind of no way of really checking... That, that of of, immediate, of quickly verifying that that circuit did what we all thought it was going to do. I mean, mm-hmm. I looked at that paper, uh, tens, if not hundreds, of people have read that paper, and nobody spotted that that circuit was wrong. And
0: it's that's a wonderful that's... feeling from my point of view.
1: <laughs> yes, we, we were all mistaken. But you see, <laughs> that was. You know, don't blame yourself, blame the formalism, because this, yeah. this is simply the fact that formalism was opaque to understanding what was going on. And that, that's that's a very good example, because if you look at – so he's got a very detailed blog post. Um, we recommend people go and, and read it, because he goes step by step through how he tried to, first of all, um, troubleshoot it you know, realizing, no, it's a problem with the circuit, and then went through and showed, okay, this is where this particular error will propagate to, and he did this by hand through all of Mm. these circuits. Uh, And that, what he's done, is actually only a few lines of ZX rewrites.
0: Well, I mean, if if anything, that proves the, the... well this gives a good reason to maybe moving on to this formalism
1: yes and so another thing that we're doing with zx um, is is developing a way of not only using it in its its standard form where if you like each each node represents a process on a single qubit be that physical or logical So we're also now developing um, a scalable version of it where we're able to represent within the diagrams repeated structures and to use um, a certain pared down set of matrices and vectors to define um, structures of Z... This is this is where trying to describe a graphical language gets <laughs> difficult.
0: Um, oh, that's all right. I mean, I'll, I'll certainly be pointing everyone in your in your direction and and your papers for them to go take a look at. Obviously, you can't get much of it across over audio.
1: Yes, but basically, this is going to be a way of. of um, describing repeated high-level structures using um a uh, an extended version of the zx calculus and so you know the the space is open it's not the zx calculus set in stone is the one way one true way forward it's Part of the way forward, um, and it, it's also it 's a ladder we can use to to climb to more ways of doing programming I mean what we found classically is you wouldn 't say, "Oh there is one classical computing programming language mm-hmm. you know, there 's many 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 you go to the Wikipedia page on programming languages there 's dozens if not hundreds. And you pick the one that is good for what you want to do with it. And we need to start populating that ecosystem for quantum computers. Mm -hmm. Because in the end, quantum computers are there for us to use them. And a programming language is not about the computer, it's about the user. Um, And so we need to start developing many many more languages and for me the zx calculus is the best way forward we've got at the moment but i would certainly hope it's not the only way
0: well i think we've hit our hour so i think that's a perfect spot at which to uh, to leave it for today so Fantastic. just in the next couple of minutes um, if there's anything happening in, in grenoble or anything else happening with respect to your work or anything you'd like to plug um please feel free to <laughs>
1: So um, just for people who don't know so the, the at the University of Grenoble we've now got um the the French government's quantum engineering project so this is this is um a multi year project that brings together experimentalists on the one hand and people like me doing the programming side of things. We've also got um, people looking at foundational aspects, so it's a great team here, come give us a visit, Um, look out for the work that we produce, you know, when France produces the world's first quantum computer will be here. Um, and next February we've got our big quantum technology conference that from the EU flagship that's coming to Grenoble. So yeah, it's all it's all happening here. Um, we love having visitors, so get in touch if you're in the neighbourhood or if you want to come in the neighbourhood.
0: Definitely, I second that uh, that thought, and I'll obviously put all of Dominic's contact details. Uh, within the description to this podcast. So please feel free to give him a buzz. If you've got some any ideas or want to work together or anything, I, I know he's always up for it. So Absolutely. thanks again, Dominic, for, for joining me today. And uh, I hope everybody uh, out there uh, got something out of this discussion. We went from foundations all the way through to something which is uh, potentially very, very practical for the long-term uh, health of the field. So Dom, Thanks again for taking an hour out of your morning.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: No problem. So thanks a lot, everyone, again, uh, for downloading this episode. Again, the next episode will just come out whenever it comes out. Um, I can't promise any timelines anymore. So thanks a lot, all, and uh, catch you next time.